My brothers and sisters in Christ, I can't think of any place I'd rather be this morning. Let me tell you this story. There was a teacher who was drilling his young students on the Westminster Convention, Confession of Faith. Anybody ever had catechism? Some of us grew up with a catechism of some sort, Catholic or Protestant or Mormon or Buddhist. Okay. Well, the first question in the catechism, anybody remember the first question in the catechism? What's the chief end of man, right? Well, the answer, of course, is, wow, we have some really good, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. A lot of, a lot of you remember that. And one of the kids in this class was pretty sure of himself, and so he was trying to get the teacher's attention. I know, I know, I know, because he knew the answer. Well, the teacher called his name, and he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and annoy him forever. <laughs> now, I don't think it's very good theology to say that we can annoy God. We can make a biblical case that we could grieve God and even anger him, but not so much annoy him. But it is good theology to say that our ultimate purpose is to glorify God. Now, we don't think of it that way very often unless you've been through catechism and maybe you were indoctrinated in that. But a lot of us don't think that way about our purpose as followers of Christ. We might think our purpose is to serve God in some way, and of course that's true, but the end goal in serving Him is or should be to glorify Him. We might think our purpose is to participate in some way in the Great Commission, right? Bringing others to Christ. And that's true too, but the end goal in that service as well is to glorify Him. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians that whatever we do, we are to glorify God. He created us for his glory. But the problem is, we have no glory of our own to give him. We're fallible, weak, sinful creatures who tend to seek our own glory rather than give glory to God. Yet God's word tells us that we are to reflect his glory and that in the process of sanctifying us, he changes us into his image so that we can reflect his glory more and more and more. And his image is one of glory. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. I spent some time in it this week. One reason it's interesting is because of the way the word beholding in the version I just read is translated in some other uh, versions of this passage. In the original language, the word there means to look or to behold as in a mirror. Most translations have chosen to uh, render this word beholding, but you find scholars arguing for reflecting, beholding, and beholding as in a mirror. The NIV says, for example, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you see the difference there, reflect rather than behold. Then there's the New Living Translation, which in this case you could call the cop-out translation. Let's make it both. It says, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. 
And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So we see three different translations taking three different approaches with this uh, word. And this morning, without being dogmatic about it and say this is absolutely what it means, I want to take a position. I'm going to follow the cop-out position too this morning. And I'm going to say it can mean both. And that is it can mean both beholding and reflecting. And here's why. One Bible dictionary says this about the word uh, that we're looking at here this morning. It says meaning, it means beholding the glory of the Lord as reflected and radiant in the gospel. So there we see both meanings, beholding and reflecting. And also, as we do with all other scripture, we have to look at the context, right? We hammer that in our house church, don't we? Context, context. We always want to look at the context, what's around it, right? The immediate context of this verse is actually the Old Testament. He's talking about Moses. Yes, Moses in the Old Testament. Paul was making a comparison there. Remember that Moses had the amazing experience of getting a glimpse of God, of actually being in his presence. And afterward, you remember what happened? His face was radiant. It literally shined with God's glory. We read about this in Exodus chapter 34. It was kind of a God sunburn. He was in the presence of God, and he had that sunburn that he came away with. But what happens with sunburns, besides the fact that they often hurt, what happens? They eventually fade, right? Sometimes they might actually even begin to peel away. If you're lucky, they might turn into a tan, but even that's eventually gone. They don't last. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians here that Moses' radiance was a diminishing, a fading radiance. In the Christian, however, this radiance of God is not only not diminishing, it's not only not fading, it's ever-increasing. Or as the New American Standard of this version puts it, it's from glory to glory. That is, from one stage of glory to a better, higher stage of glory. So just like Moses, the glory of believers in Christ is but a reflection of his glory, What's different in the believer is that the glory we reflect due to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives isn't fading, but it's ever increasing. So we go back to first, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. If the primary meaning here is beholding, what are we beholding? The beauty and majesty of the gospel of grace, which is so much better than the old covenant which Moses received when he got his glow. So much better that this is a radiance that never fades. If the primary meaning here is reflecting God's glory, what are we reflecting? The most glorious thing God ever did was redemption. It was redeeming us. That's the thing for which he will receive the most glory forever and ever, amen, in eternity, right? So, we're reflecting the beauty and majesty of God's grace. And again, Paul makes the comparison by telling us that this gospel doesn't make us glow for a while and then fade, just the opposite. It's a glow that actually starts from the inside. It's not from that God sunburn that Moses had. It starts from the inside with the changing of our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And then it begins to radiate more and more as God changes us from the inside out. And in the process of changing us, transforming us, we begin to look more like Jesus. As if when we look into a mirror, we're seeing less of me and more of him. 
So call it a cop-out, if you will, not taking a position on whether this verse means beholding, beholding as a mirror, or reflecting. I think this passage and others we see support all these ideas because the bottom line remains. It's God's glory and not ours, whether we're beholding or reflecting or both. And in Christ, we are meant to be changed into his image. In being changed into his image, we do reflect a glory that's not our own. There's a great Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren, and he said this once. He said, the contrast to all this lies in our text. Judaism had one lawgiver who beheld God while the people tarried below. Christianity leads us all to the Mount of Vision and lets the lowliest pass through the fences and go up where the blazing glory is seen. Moses veiled the face that shone with the irradiation of deity. We with unveiled face are to shine among men. He had a momentary gleam, a transient brightness. We have a perpetual light. Moses' face shone, but the luster was skin deep. But the light that we have is inward, and it works transformation into its own likeness. Isn't that a cool thought? What we see from this passage is both beholding, more than just beholding, but constantly beholding. And it is contemplating, and it is reflecting. The Christian life is one of contemplating God's glory, looking at it, thinking about it, and thus reflecting God's glory. Again, from McLaren, whatever be the exact force of the word, the thing intended includes both acts. There is no reflection of the light without a previous reception of the light. In bodily sight, the eye is a mirror, and there is no sight without an image of the thing which are perceived being formed in the perceiving eye. In spiritual sight, the soul which beholds is a mirror, and at once beholds and reflects. Thus then we may say that we have in our text the Christian life described as one of contemplation and manifestation of the light of God. I like that thought. Contemplation and then manifestation flows from that. This is a very rich metaphor for us to explore this morning. It's rich because of the admonition in 1 Corinthians that we mentioned just a moment ago. Let me read from that passage. This is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good but the good of many so that they may be saved. I think this passage of Scripture this morning presents us with a very important choice that we all need to make as followers of Christ. Will we, by doing everything we do for the glory of God, seek the good of many? Or by glorifying ourselves, will we seek only our own good and cause others to stumble? In other words, are we going to be a full moon or are we going to be a solar eclipse? I'll explain that idea here in just a moment. As believers, it's clear from the passage of Scripture we just read that God commands us to do everything for his glory. The word everything is pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? It says in verse 31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. But the passage also notes that there is a real risk here. 
we can do all to the glory of God, or we can cause others to stumble by working only to glorify ourselves. When we seek the good of many, as it says in verse 33, by glorifying God, there's a positive result there, that they may be saved, it says. Can we agree that when people are saved, God is glorified? Even as we did this morning when we glorified the Lord together in prayer for those who accepted Christ in the Good News Club. The Word of God is full of references to God's glory, and it's often related to what we do. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we read Jesus' words, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There seems to be a cause and effect here, isn't there? First, people see your good works, which of course assumes that you're doing them. And then as a result, they glorify our Heavenly Father. So thinking about this analogy of light, which is used so often in Scripture, isn't it? And in many cases, light is often part of the description of God's glory. I thought of a story I heard in a concert about 40 years ago. The concert was by Barry McGuire. Everybody remember Barry McGuire? Anybody remember Barry McGuire? A lot of us do. You're showing your age by raising your hand. He told a story about riding on a bus between concerts on a national tour, and they were reading the Bible there, and one of his uh, bandmates uh, pointed out something he was reading in Genesis, and he got real excited about it. And He said, God made two great lights, Genesis 1.16, the greater light to cover and govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And his friend said, that's like us. We're the moon. We're like the moon. And Barry said he didn't quite get it. So the guy continued, well, Jesus is like the sun that shines and is the true source of light for the world. And the moon isn't the light, but reflects the light to a dark world. As Christians, we reflect Jesus' light to the world. So Barry said, I finally got it. And he said, oh, Lord, I want to be a full moon. Can you hear him in that growly voice? I want to be a full moon. You know, I can remember that. As I thought of this analogy, I remember thinking several things that expanded on this sun and moon idea. So walk with me through this here as it relates to our subject this morning. Remember, first of all, that the moon doesn't generate any of its own light. It's just a cold, dark stone in space orbiting around our Earth. Also remember the, that the moon is at its most magnificent when it's a full moon. Anybody seen the full moon we had this past week? It was really bright. I saw it a couple mornings. I saw it a couple evenings. And it uses all of its surface to reflect the sun's life. When it's a light, when it's a full moon, we see everything, right? The planets in our solar system revolve around the sun, and the moon revolves around the earth. And think about this analogy, since we're going with this idea here. What do you hear said of people who have a tendency to glorify themselves? They think the world revolves around them, don't they? Right? Taking this analogy just a little bit further, think of this. If we're the moon, not only do we not generate any of our own light, but we're not also the center of the solar system either. That means nothing revolves around us. Nothing. If the sun, in our analogy, is the son of God, Jesus, and if the earth is the world, that is, the people we're trying to reach with the gospel, our little moon lights the night sky with the reflected light of the son of God. In fact, if we're the moon, we revolve around the earth, and the moon reflects the light of the sun. I want to be a full moon, right? 
when we glorify God, we do reflect the light of the Son of God. And when we don't glorify God, and when we try to shine our own light, as if we could, we eclipse the sun's light. We block it. We get in the way. Of course, our own dim light, such as it is, is very dim compared to the light of the Son of God. We're kind of like a 25-watt light bulb, maybe more like a night light bulb, right? It doesn't put out a whole lot of light. But not only is the light of the Son of God beyond comparing to our own natural puny light, but when we try to shine our own light, in other words, when we try to glorify ourselves, we're more like a solar eclipse. We block the sun's light. We make it hard for others to see it. And the reverse is true. When we're fully reflecting God's light, when we're a full moon, it's a lot easier to light the world around us. It's easier for people to see God's light. And we draw attention to the source by serving as a reflection and deflecting attention from ourselves. I'm assuming everybody knows what an eclipse is, right? But let's think of this idea of eclipse in spiritual terms this morning and in the context of glorifying God as our focus. The first meaning, if you look it up in a dictionary of the word eclipse, is the scientific meaning. It's an astronomical term. A solar eclipse is the obscuring of light of the sun by the intervention of the moon between it and a point on earth. And some secondary definitions of eclipse add to our thinking this morning. Here's some secondary definitions of eclipse. A reduction of loss or splendor. A reduction of loss, splendor, status, or reputation. For example, Jim's sermon last week was eclipsed by Bill's this week. That's not a humble brag. Another secondary definition, to make less outstanding or important by comparison, to surpass. Laura's fish eclipsed her husband's fishing prowess because Jim didn't catch any. <laughs> the definition of solar is instructive too. So let's think of when we think of solar and you hear the word sun, let's think of sun, S-O-N, okay? Scientifically, solar means of or pertaining to the sun, determined by the sun, proceeding from the sun as light or heat, utilizing, operated by, or depending on solar energy, indicating time by means of or with reference to the sun, subject to the influence of the sun. They all kind of fit, don't they? Think about it this way. As Christians, we're a solar people. Just like the definition of solar, we're of or pertaining to the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, the Son of God. Our lives are determined by the sun. We proceed from the sun. Our lives utilize, operate, and depend on solar energy. I know I do. Our times are all in reference to the sun. We are subject to the influence of the sun. And when we put the two together, solar and eclipse, we see we are a solar people, energized by Christ, encouraged to shine his light, to glorify him by reflecting his light to the world. But we're also warned about eclipsing that light, obscuring or getting in the way of it. Remember our definition of a solar eclipse and think of it in these spiritual terms. With Jesus the sun, we're the moon and the world is represented by the earth. A solar eclipse is the obscuring, the blocking of the light of the sun. 
by the intervention of the moon between it and a point on the earth. So if we're the moon and we get in the way of the light of the sun, not only can people not see the light of the sun directly, if at all, they can't even see the reflected light of the sun shining off of us. So again, we can obey God, we can serve him, we can glorify him, and we can be a full moon. Or we can obscure, we can block, we can get in the way of his light and his love, and we can be a solar eclipse. What we are sometimes is light blockers. We block the light. We block the light of Christ, which in scriptural terms sometimes translates into another phrase we might think about, glory thieves. Whether we're intentionally grabbing glory for ourselves or just getting in the way of God's glory, we obscure the light of the Son of God. We rob God of the glory that's due only to him. I read a story about a first-year teacher in kindergarten and uh, this teacher had a student in his class who was having a birthday. And the mother of the student wanted to have a party in the class. So she brought all the party stuff, the presents, the cake, the ice cream, etc. And the teacher noticed as the party was progressing that there was one little boy back in the corner kind of sulking. And when the presents were handed out and he didn't get any, well, of course he didn't get any. It wasn't his birthday party, right? He'd sulk again. And you'd kind of hear him go, hmm. And the next present, mm. and before long, he was the center of attention and well on his way to spoiling this party. One of the mothers at the party noticed this going on, and so she went up to the little powder in the corner, and she said to him quietly, Johnny, it's not your party. It's not your party. Isn't that a great thing for us to keep in mind as we think about glorifying God? It's not our party. It's not my party. It's not your party. That little boy was not just selfish, wanting the presence. He wanted the glory. He wanted the attention. He wanted the party to be about him. He was upset because he wasn't the center of attention. But he wasn't supposed to be the center of attention. It wasn't his birthday. Now, think of Scripture, and you think John the Baptist, he understood this idea. He understood that he wasn't to be the center of attention. He said about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. We also read in uh, John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's referring to John the Baptist. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And then it goes on to say, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John the Baptist knew. He got this, okay? He knew he was not the light. He knew that his role was to be a witness to, or to use our metaphor for the day, to reflect the light, right? The passages of Scripture we've read this morning related to God's glory are just a few of the literally hundreds of verses in the Old and the New Testament which say something about glorifying God or about his glory. That's because the word of God is his story. It's his story. It's about his party, if you will, his plan, his glory. It's all about him. Even with all the people that are mentioned in the Bible, even with all the stories, it's still God's story. It's his glory. We were made for his glory, and we are called 
to display his glory in everything we do. But sin and our own self-will makes us sometimes glory thieves. A writer named Paul Tripp wrote this, We crave glory that does not belong to us, and we step on one another to get it. Rather than glorifying God by using the things he has given us to love other people, we use people to get the glory we love. Sin causes us to steal the story and rewrite it with ourselves as the lead and with our lives at center stage. But there is only one stage, and it belongs to the Lord. Any attempt to put ourselves in his place puts us in a war with him. That's a sobering way to think about it. We do not suffer well because suffering interferes with our glory. We do not find relationships easy because others compete with us for glory. We do not serve well because in our quest for glory, we want to be served. Now, the enemy of our souls, folks, the enemy of our souls is very well aware of our propensity to be glory thieves. He tried to steal God's glory himself, and he failed. So he said, okay, well, if I can't do it, I'm going to get these folks to do it. He tempted Eve with the same idea. Right at the beginning, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. Satan told Eve what? You will be like God. Satan tried to try, uh, sidetrack Jesus from the Father's plan for his glory. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, we read about that in Luke chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And the devil said to him, I will give you all of this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, there's a lie, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So here we see Jesus quoting Scripture, quoting Deuteronomy. In that Old Testament book, Moses warned the people about their attitude, knowing that when they finally got into the land that God promised and achieved some level of glory and dominion, the temptation would be for them to take that praise for themselves and forget to worship God, to give God the glory. So Jesus quoted this verse to say that that which was God's to give, I will not accept from another. In fact, Jesus did communicate this idea, and often, and we'll give you an example. He communicated in some different words in John chapter 5, verses 41 and 44. In 41, he said, I do not receive glory from men. And in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? The stamp of approval, the glory from the religious leaders in Israel was not important to Jesus. He wanted God's approval, and only God's approval was important to him. Think about that. Think of how we need the stamp of approval. Think of how much we need the praise and even the affirmation. Now, that doesn't say that from my perspective, I am to affirm you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but we need it. And Jesus said, I don't need that. I look to the Lord for my stamp of approval, for my affirmation. Let me read a biblical definition of glory. It's the weighty importance and shining majesty which accompany God's presence. The basic meaning of the Hebrew word kabod is heavy in weight. So the verb often comes to mean give weight to honor, 
to give glory is to praise, to recognize the importance of another, the weight that someone else carries in the community. A regular definition from a regular dictionary is helpful too. Very great praise, honor or distinction bestowed by common consent, renown. A dictionary definition of glorify is to cause to be or treat as being more splendid, more excellent, etc., than normally would be considered. To honor with praise, admiration, or worship to extol. That's the idea when we see glory in Scripture. There's so much, there's so much more we could say about God's glory, and there's so much we can say about glorifying Him. But I want to take the last several minutes this morning and look at a selection of truths, just a hint of the truths that we see about God's glory and glorifying him. It's not meant to be exhaustive by any means. You come up to me after the sermon and say, well, it means this and this. Yep, I know, but this is the three that I'm picking. I'm up here, so. Hopefully this will get us thinking in the right direction. First, with Jesus as a model for us, the first thing to think about is this. Suffering is a path to glory. Now, that's not a pleasant thing to think about, and there's a lot of churches in town where you'll never hear that, but this is what the Scripture tells us. Suffering is a path to glory. And the corresponding truth is that if suffering was a prerequisite for Jesus' glory, why shouldn't it be for us? Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? There's a significant body of Scripture that tells us suffering for Christ allows us in some mystical way I don't claim to understand to share his glory. Romans 8:17, for example. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So trials, tribulation, suffering, these things purify, they test, they prove our faith, they reveal our devotion, they provide opportunities for God to glorify himself in us and allow us to share in his glory. God can use anything for his glory. That's why Paul tells us to do everything to his glory. We read that in 1 Corinthians 10 earlier. Charles Colson once said, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for his glory. Isn't that something to think about? In John chapter 11, verse 4, where Jesus first hears of the illness of his good friend Lazarus, it says, when he heard of this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And of course, we know that later Lazarus was raised from the dead, and Jesus was indeed glorified through this. There's a second great truth about the glory of God I want to spend a couple minutes on. God is glorified when people come to him through Christ. Amen? He's glorified when we play a part in bearing 
that fruit. Think about that. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says this, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This passage is in the context of Jesus teaching that he's the vine and we are the branches. And so he is glorified in our fruit bearing. Just as he's glorified in the growth of crops on a farm, he sends the sunshine, he sends the rain, he makes the crops grow, and he makes them ready for harvest. We read in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11, and it speaks of being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. A third great truth about God's glory is really amazing when you think about it. Our faithful following of Jesus, our doulos service of him, in some very real but almost mystical way, is a part of his glory. In John 17, as Jesus prayed to the Father, he said in verse 10, All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Think about that for a minute. Glory has come to me through them. What an amazing thought. In the Old Testament, God lived among his people, and he showed them his glory. And then when Jesus came, God's glory was displayed in him. And then his disciples glorified him. And now, in our age, we have the privilege of glorifying Jesus with our very lives, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We have the privilege of revealing his glory to the world. Glory, God's glory, is the revelation of his character. When we're in our full moon mode, we too reveal his character. We reflect the light of the world. As God transforms us into the image and likeness of Christ, as we apply more and more of the truth of God's word, as we grow in production of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, the Holy Spirit changes us. We reflect more and more of his glory, our attitudes, our behavior, everything in our lives reflects more of his light into a dark world. We go from starting out before we come to Christ, and then when we first come to Christ, we're like a dark new moon, right? It's dark. You can see the stars, but you can't see the moon. And then we're a quarter moon, maybe a sliver, and then a quarter, and then we're a half, and we are being built to be full moons. The more we become like him, the more we reflect his glory and thus glorify him. When we show compassion, we glorify him. When we reveal his grace, we glorify him. The glory of God should be the ruling motive of our lives as Christians. So let's determine together as a body, as individuals in a body, but as a body, let's determine to shine the light of Christ by reflecting God's character in our own lives, reflecting his glory, not for any purpose of our own, but for the purpose of glorifying him, our great God. He's the only one who's worthy of true glory. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for these tremendous truths in Scripture. And we do remember, Father, that our chief end, our chief purpose, our primary reason for you leaving us on this earth and then taking us to eternity with you is to give you glory. Father, to glorify you, to reflect the glory, Father, that only you have and only you are worthy of. So, Father, we do pray 
Even now, we pray, Heavenly Father, that your Holy Spirit would build that in us, even as you promised in your word that we would be transformed from glory to glory. We would be transformed into your image, Father. Transform us. Transform us more into a fuller and fuller moon so we can truly reflect your light to a hurting world, Father. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.